You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze the various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, distributed ledger technologies and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the media industry and how blockchain technology can find innovative solutions to several problems plaguing the space. The media industry as a whole is a very broad ecosystem with many different players from video sharing platforms to traditional broadcasters to music creators to the various technology companies providing specific solutions for these media companies. In an existing online media space where the power of central companies is becoming increasingly dependent on social influencers, the industry faces several challenges around revenue sharing with content creators censorship of information or even management of digital ownership rights of content creators we're going to be discussing some of the most prominent areas in the online media ecosystem where blockchain technology is looking to disrupt existing models for the purpose of this episode we decided to focus on various projects that are looking to solve different types of problems in this ecosystem first we'll be discussing some of the prominent blockchain based projects that are looking to tackle the online video space and are looking to compete with companies such as youtube second we will look at a project that is trying to create an alternative video delivery network for better quality video delivery along with making it cheaper third we will be talking about a specific aspect of digital rights management uh, and we'll look into an example from the music industry where blockchain technology is being seen as a possible solution for better management of ownership rights and distributing royalties for different artists So Nikhil can you start off with an introduction into what the media ecosystem looks like from the top view and what are some of the key areas where blockchain technology can make a difference Thanks KK so uh, that's a great overview uh, of what the media ecosystem looks like I think uh, like you very correctly pointed out there are a few aspects where uh, blockchain can really help If you look at blockchains in general they gen- they're generally useful for uh, establishing provenance of things and uh, this is where i think in in at least in terms of the media industry there is a major uh, gap in the sense that uh, it is very hard to kind of establish creative ownership of uh, media today right so especially in the music industry it's when you have so many you know artists collaborating so many uh, production designer uh, production collaborating the singer the songwriter so many people actually getting together to create a successful work of art it is important to be able to uh, identify and by identifying properly be able to remunerate all of these uh, stakeholders in that particular creative piece of art so so that's one area where i think blockchain can play a very good part uh, essentially is establishing provenance and establishing ownership of media right Uh, another uh, area that's uh, starting to become more and more prominent especially with all the recent controversies around uh, you know youtube's uh, ai algorithm or uh, tightening its uh, censorship rules uh, is the idea that okay uh, the decentralization of the content platform right so here here basically uh blockchains are really good at disseminating and keeping information in such a way that there is no 
central control or uh, uh, there's no way to attack and block uh, any particular piece of content now you may argue that this may this has uh, pros and cons because obviously uh, as with all content there is also uh, malicious content libellous content uh, inappropriate illegal content and and all the challenges related to that so uh, basically we will discuss into a little bit about how how that can be addressed uh, in a world which is decentralized and then finally i think uh, another great area where blockchains generally uh, tend to disrupt and i think there is a good uh, synergy with uh, the media space is the is in the payment and micropayments right so currently right now if you look at it the uh, media supply chain has a lot of uh, you know intermediaries so you have uh, a lot of people in between the artist who is actually creating the music or the or the video the uh, the content creator and the fans who are consuming this content correct so the can between the uh, creator and the consumer there are a lot of steps in the supply chain and each step basically has an intermediary that is reducing the efficiency of uh, uh, the especially the economic efficiency of each step right so that can be in a large way disrupted uh, by blockchains great so before we you know sort of discuss uh, how we got here and how the online uh, video content creation platforms and how the entire you know content industry is the way it is today let's just quickly take a look at you know how we got here basically you know in in the in the start of uh, early 2000s you know, a website like youtube was uh, just you know uh, becoming popular and until that time the primary model uh, that people followed you know for creating content and consuming content was basically the broadcast model so you had these different tv channels and uh, you you would create content through uh, you would create some sort of a program that the tv channel would pick up and then it would broadcast it through its medium to the various audience who would watch it so uh, the as youtube came along it sort of disrupted this model because uh, it connected the audience directly to the content creators it allowed for a platform where people could upload their video content and uh, people could just freely watch it uh, by logging on to youtube so basically youtube became this platform where content creators could upload their content and the audience could just come and watch it free of cost and from this different kinds of monetization models were born so when youtube uh, applied advertising onto its platform it provided a means for paying the content creators through the various ads that would be displayed on their content and as as time progressed more monetization models came in like for example direct sponsorship model became really prominent where a brand like uh, let's say uh, a car manufacturer or a or a camera manufacturer could just communicate directly with a content creator and sponsor their content and one way or the other integrate that brand into the content so as time progressed more and more content creators they started becoming dependent on uh, the monetization from youtube through either direct advertising through the ads that that youtube was placing on their channel or uh, they were depending on the brands that that were willing to sponsor their content so uh, this sort of shifted the power very greatly in the hands of both the middleman that was youtube 
as well as the uh, advertisers uh, because if a content was not really advertiser friendly uh, the content would not get uh, many brand sponsorships or 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 any support support from different sort of brands so as of today where we are uh, you know there is this infamous term called advertiser friendliness so if your uh, content is not advertiser friendly uh, your chances of uh, you know growing as a channel or your chances of becoming successful in the content creation space would decrease and uh, if you just think about it philosophically the question that one would ask is so what should the success of a channel depend on right so let's say if somebody has uh, a youtube channel and uh, a video of theirs gets 10 million views uh, in comparison uh, if somebody uh, has another channel uh, which has c- content which is much more advertiser friendly and it gets only half the views let's say if they get only uh, 5 million views the advertising potential for the half a million view mm, guy might be higher than uh, somebody with many more views than that because uh, it, you know a, a brand or a or an advertiser would be willing to sponsor that content so this has sort of shifted the power away from content creators and in the audience into the hands of uh, a middleman such as youtube as well as the uh, network of advertisers that it works with also mainly because youtube has complete monopoly over the uh, the data that's uh, that it has with regard to the various uh, demographics of the audience that are consuming uh, the content on youtube so uh, youtube knows exactly the sort of audience that that any sort of content creators channel is getting so it has complete control over you know how to use this data and basically provide it to different advertisers for for them to reach out for advertising so uh, you know going forward uh, people have looked at multiple ways that this can be resolved one such example is that of a company such as patreon which uh, basically created a service where uh, the audience can directly fund the youtube content creators so nikhil do you want, do you want to just touch upon that sure so one very quick point before uh, getting into patreon one and that's basically regarding the uh, the recommended feature recommendation feature of youtube right so this is actually one of the uh, main reasons where i think uh, youtube kind of wrested a lot of the power out of the quality of content and uh, brought it under its own control so to speak so if you look at youtube today especially on a mobile app by default when you finish read watching one video and another video starts playing so the uh, algorithm this that uh, youtube uses is basically uh, optimizing for you know user stickiness and user interest and and it kind of works in couple of ways that which i personally feel are not optimal one is that it kind of pulls users down a particular path and uh, the interesting thing is that you know every time you watch a video on youtube the history of whatever you have watched basically influences what is the the algorithm to provide you with more of the same so you end up start starting to go and create a bubble around yourself about only things that use what youtube feels that you are interested in it will show you so you don't even actually get to see popular content on youtube if it doesn't happen to be something that the algorithm uh, deems something that uh, you you would like to see right so that that one particular part of it kind of puts you into this media bubble that is uh, in my opinion not that great the other thing about it is that if from the creator side if your content is deemed uh, advertiser unfriendly your content very rarely will get into that recommended 
AI. So you would never be played in front of other people. So you, you might have an existing audience, but you would not be able to grow that audience because YouTube would never, you, you, there wouldn't be any serendipity. YouTube would never show you to any new users. And that is basically where uh, I think this aspect of censorship comes in, right? So as a content creator, you cannot control that, right? You, you, you have very limited ways to kind of become popular. So as KK was talking about the, in the earlier uh, segment, when he was talking about the two examples of 5 million to 10 million, uh, the 5 million uh, view video would very quickly start eclipsing and getting more views whereas the 10 million view, view media video uh, would probably not grow as quickly and this has outsized effect on the revenue that is uh, brought brought in by the content creator now moving to patreon and the other platforms so and this is not just in terms of YouTube. You can, to be honest, this is a similar kind of thing with the, uh, uh, you know, Facebook newsfeed, even with uh, uh, some of the uh, Twitter and uh, other social media, LinkedIn, uh, other social media platforms. Uh, all of them generally tend to kind of do some active filtering on what uh, people can see and what they cannot see right and uh, what what they cannot uh, what is not brought up to them and this basically has led to a drastic reduction in uh, in the revenue of uh, of uh, content creators and uh, one of the alternative mechanisms that have started coming out is the idea of you know donation uh, or uh, donation driven content so the this is something that came out in the national public radio space right so if one of the few places where i have donated money is essentially in uh, in towards radio lab uh, and uh, the reason why that uh, why i did that is because it is got great content and uh, their content is basically uh, driven largely by donation similarly for wikipedia so so patreon is is basically a uh, website that uh, allows content creators to set up uh, the infrastructure required for uh, building a recurring donation so patreon basically essentially allows uh, content creators to create an account and uh, provide a link uh, donation link and uh, allows them to allows uh, consumers to basically then uh, go in and enter their uh, you know financial details for a recurring a recurring donation right so it will be a monthly donation or a quarterly donation or a weekly donation and uh, the reason why it's considered to be a promising uh, alternative is because of the recurring part of it the recurring revenue gives some kind of assurance that this would be a continued source of income for the content creator as opposed to you know donations which are typically one time only so just to build up on that uh, so patreon is definitely looking to solve this problem you know try to give more hands in the power of the audience so that they can actually directly support their favorite content creators on a platform such as youtube but again like the shortcoming with that um, is that patreon is a central company and uh, they generally use like a credit card a method of transaction for the audience to actually make payments to the content creators so uh, that 
includes a fee and uh, i think patreon itself charges about 5% uh, commission out of any payments that are made from the audience to the content creators so uh, i guess this is where um, certain blockchain based or cryptocurrency based projects are looking to disrupt the space and uh, sort of going on the same lines but trying to build a separate decentralized system where you could create a a media ecosystem where uh, people could create content and be supported by their audience at the same time so uh, the first such project that we just want to quickly talk about today is called library which is spelled as l b r y and uh, library is a separate protocol just like ethereum or bitcoin and from a technical perspective the best way to describe it uh, is that it is probably a mix of blockchain and bittorrent Uh, the purpose of the protocol currently is to create something like a decentralized youtube how it works uh, as one would guess uh, the media content itself is not stored on the blockchain as uh, media files generally tend to be really big in size and uh, you know they would bloat up the blockchain uh, instead the media is actually stored by distributing the files on a decentralized torrent like network where people who are running the library client automatically download the media file onto their computer and seed it to the, uh, to other computers and uh, so what actually gets stored on the blockchain is actually the metadata that's associated with the file and uh, to understand better how it works uh, we need to understand what is uh, called naming and uh, how library actually goes about it so nikhil can you explain what naming is and uh, how it is handled in the library ecosystem sure so library basically uh, as you pointed out is a uh, network where files are uploaded and it is placed in a interplanetary file system or in a in a in a particular you know publicly addressable space correct and uh, so obviously once in uh, and and in the blockchain only the metadata that is associated with the file is available so one of the things is okay how do i actually provide consumers with a simple way of accessing this particular metadata and uh, so so you you have this concept in library of a of a uh, name uh, which is essentially a url like uh, or a dom- uh, or a, like a domain name right so if you look at the naming uh, uh, in in library uh, there is a uh, you know a, like http there is a lbry colon and then you give the slash backslash backslash and then you give a name and this name can be whatever name you want now obviously one of the standard problems even today with the internet essentially is you want to get a good name for your a simple easy to remember name for your content uh, so that people can easily get to you right if you have a very complicated name or if it is a you know uh, like a block hash or something then uh, nobody is going to be able to remember it and nobody will come to your site and uh, basically it's also part of your brand etc etc now what library wanted to do was to come up with a way to allow people to choose their particular name but at the same time kind of address the challenge of uh, name squatting or domain name squatting as it's called in the in the in the internet world so here what what it is is that you know people who the early pe- people who come early into the system would uh, go and uh, randomly pick a lot of very common words and very common uh, or very famous brands and content creator names and they would basically register or buy all of them and then essentially extort 
the people or the brands who actually have that name to buy back that particular URL, right? And so the way library basically handles this essentially is it's come up with a separate protocol for naming. And the way it works essentially is that you can create any name that you want or you can claim any name that you want. But at any point, it's just a claim. And the way you, when you claim, uh, in order to claim a name in a library, what you have to do is you have to take a certain amount of the library credits or LBC and put it against that particular claim. So if, for example, my name is Nikhil Krishna and I want to use, claim the name Nikhil. Right now, Nikhil is a very common name. So there would conceivably be a lot of people who have the same name in the library ecosystem. So when I claim Nikhil and I put in a certain amount of library credits, suppose I put in a hundred credits. What essentially I'm doing is I am basically locking these credits against that particular claim. And the claim basically stands as long as uh, I keep those credits locked against it, right? Now, in this particular case, I'm not actually buying that particular name. I'm not transferring credits to anybody. I'm not giving anybody any credits. All I'm doing is locking credits against that claim. So if there is another person who is basically using library, who has the same name as me, Nikhil, and wants to use that particular name uh, in by itself, he has two choices. He can either also claim the name Nikhil and put more credits than I'm able to muster against it. So suppose he puts in a thousand credits and I don't have a thousand credits, then his claim comes up uh, on top of mine, right? And whenever you are searching for the name Nikhil, his, his claim would be above mine in the results that come back. So you would still have two URLs with Nikhil in it, but the simple name Nikhil would, would actually redirect to him versus my in against my name, it would be uh, Nikhil followed by my claim ID, right? So it would be, it wouldn't be the simple name. It will be my simple, the simple name that I have claimed against along with my claim ID to identify me from the other Nikhil who spent more money or who's, who's locked more credits against it. So interestingly, what the library uh, algorithm does it, is it creates this tree structure. Uh, it's actually a tri structure, which keeps a track of all the claims against a particular name and kind of orders it by the amount of tokens that have been locked against it. Now, it is possible for other people to lock credits against my claim. So suppose I am, for example, uh, Nikhil and I am a very popular uh, personality in library. Maybe the this podcast blows up on library, who knows. And, you know, I can have my fans basically lock some credits from their accounts against this particular name. Or I can have, you know, Krishna and other people in my company lock credits against this name to kind of boost the standing of this name in the tree. And uh, the interesting thing is that at no point is any money being actually exchanged. So it's not possible for me to basically sit on Nikhil and say, hey, if you pay me a certain amount of money, you can own this or I can transfer this to you. It's basically, I still own it. And uh, the library credit still belongs to my account and I still own the credit. It's just that I have locked it against this. Now, it's possible that, you know, I decide that, you know, it's not worth putting more than 100 credits and if somebody else has got more higher worth i might say okay fine i'll, I'll choose another name 
So it's very easy for me to then just uh, unlock the credits and stop backing my claim, in which case that claim gets null and void. Great. So uh, as you explained, you know, the usage of the library credits for uh, achieving this. So library credits is the same currency that is actually used within the ecosystem to actually make payments as well. So uh, let's say if I were a content creator and I uploaded a video in the library network, uh, my supporters could uh, either tip me, they could actually give me some library credits uh, if they like my content. Or I could upfront, I could just uh, put a price tag on my video. That means uh, in order to watch my video, you would need to pay like five library credits or, or whatever you set as the price. So that's another aspect of, you know, how this decentralized system where you could, you could actually uh, support direct payments from uh, the audience to the content creator. Uh, and since this whole thing is a cryptocurrency-based network, uh, the the actual cost of these transactions is a lot cheaper versus any credit card-based transactions, you know, on, on the existing centralized uh, platforms such as Patreon. So uh, that's how the, the payment mechanism works on uh, Library. And uh, coming to the censorship aspect, so this is again, as Nikhil mentioned earlier, it's, it's actually a very hot button issue in, in, in this entire media ecosystem that, you know, when you actually build some sort of a decentralized system like library or, or any other for that matter, how do you handle the censorship aspect of it? So the way library works specifically is that uh, at the protocol level, so let's say if you uploaded a video that uh, was either some copyrighted content or if it was some objectionable content. Uh, at the protocol level, library cannot uh, delete it. Uh, so if the video file has been uploaded, if it is already there on the systems of different people, uh, the metadata for it would be uh, available in the protocol level. But library as a company, which is registered in the US, it provides uh, an app that somebody can download in order to view this content. So uh, since the app has been created by library as a company, Library has control over what it can allow to be viewed through this app or what it can block on this app. So if you were to try to view this content using the library app, library as a company has the authority and it has the control to actually block it at the app level. So that is how uh, it sort of achieves this balance with regard to censorship. Very interesting. So, so, I think, so what you're saying in effect, Krishna, is that, you know, if there is some piece of content which is i don't know libellious against somebody and uh, they get the uh, us courts or the us government to basically uh, ask library to block it the li the library company to block it that company might block it but there may be a european company or an african company or an asian app right who have different apps of their own all using or all leveraging the library protocol and those apps would still be able to or still be able to show that particular content if they so chose because uh, it, they are not in the jurisdiction of where that content was blocked. That is correct. So uh, the way from what I could gather the way the company sees this is that they do not support any such libelous content directly. But uh, if somebody were to do, uh, if somebody were to uh, facilitate, you know, the viewing of such content, then they would be directly responsible for it. So if, if, if a regulator or if, if a body in the US wanted to go after them, they would have to go after them through the traditional route of, you know, going after any company which is outside the US. So uh, they do not support it directly through the app, you know, that they provide for you to view the content. 
but at the protocol level that's probably the only way that you know you can make something truly censorship resistant so uh, once it is there on the protocol even library as a company cannot really do anything to change it you know as as the company claims so interesting so this is this is kind of like uh, the dark web what people call the dark web right so uh, as a protocol uh, http and https cannot be blocked you if there is if you have your own server and you can if you're publishing uh, your content on your particular on your server and from your house through an ip address there's very little blocking that can happen and you know people can still consume it but the trick is basically what people do is that they go to google and say okay this content is objectionable please do not display that in your search results which in effect is as good as blocking the company because you know everybody uses google to find or go to a particular website great so i think uh, with that let's move on to another project uh, which is actually trying to achieve something very similar to what library is doing and it's called dtube so uh, dtube is actually uh, it started off as a part of uh, steemit and uh, it it was founded on the steam blockchain so steemit is actually a social media or a blogging platform built on the steam blockchain and it was co-founded by dan larimer you know who's also the founder of the eos platform and uh, as a blogging platform it was designed to be uh, a service you know where people can earn money based on their popularity among their readers so from steemit there was born uh, dtube you know which was basically something like a video extension of steemit you know so uh, something like a uh, youtube which was built on the steam blockchain as an extension of steemit uh, so this is how dtube dtube started off but earlier this year uh, dtube has actually gone ahead and uh, they have actually uh, built a separate blockchain for uh, the dtube ecosystem altogether uh, and uh, it still works uh, directly with the steemit uh, dtube so there are sort of two versions and so anytime you publish a video on uh, on uh, dtube on the new dtube uh, if you're logged into both versions you know it gets uploaded on both so the video is actually there on both the platforms uh, but some significant changes have actually been made you know from the previous version you know as 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 what we see from the updates given by the team so steemit was created to be something like a social uh, media platform where uh, people could post content and people could upvote this content and download this content so in the ecosystem you would have so a, a coin which was called uh, steam and you had another cryptocurrency called steam power you know which which basically decides the weightage of your vote so if you have more steam power in the ecosystem if you upvote a content or download the content it would carry more weight versus uh, an upvote or a downvote by somebody with lesser amount of steam power so very similarly in the dtube ecosystem as well you have something called voting power which uh, operates as this uh, mechanism you know for deciding uh, whose whose vote uh, whose upvote or downvote should carry more weightage so that is something that is utilized in the new dtube ecosystem as well and uh, as of right now they follow a mechanism for mirroring the content so let's say if you're an existing content creator that uses youtube you could actually uh, import uh, all the metadata of that content into dtube and so that it would be directly available to view on on your dtube account but uh, the difference is that unlike library so as we were mentioning about the library project earlier in library you have a sync feature which actually backs up the content from your youtube profile so if you try to sync your content directly from youtube it actually copies that content and backs it up so that tomorrow if you even if youtube deleted it from their servers 
it would still be available to you on your library network. Unlike that, in the DTube platform, it does not actually copy the content, rather it just copies the metadata. So theoretically speaking, you know, if, if uh, YouTube were to delete off your content tomorrow, it would actually go away from DTube as well, unless you have backed it up locally yourself. So uh, that's one of the differences uh, between, you know, how DTube and library work on the same problem. The next project that uh, we want to touch upon is called Props. And Props project was founded by the creator of the YouNow platform, which is uh, a live streaming service with about 47 million users. And uh, earlier this year, after the SEC approved their uh, Regulation A filing, uh, they integrated onto the UNOP platform completely. So uh, currently, uh, you can actually earn props tokens using the UNOP platform. So the main idea here is that when you're using a social platform such as YouTube or Facebook or Snapchat, YouTube collects and keeps about 40 to 50% of the revenue that it makes out of your content, uh, right? And like in contrast, if you see Facebook and Twitter keep nearly 100% of whatever they make out of your content. So all these networks are what they are because of the users, right? So for example, if you are an influencer on a platform such as Facebook or YouTube or Instagram, by being an influencer and building an audience for yourself on a platform, you are actually building immense value for the platform as well right? But you don't really get compensated for that by the platform directly. So the idea behind props is that if you are an influencer on any social platform, you should be able to earn and acquire a stake in the success of the ecosystem proportionally to your influence. So props token has a simple API that other platforms can use uh, to integrate props onto their platform. And uh, users can basically earn props tokens based on their level of influence or their level of engagement on that platform. So uh, the system basically is designed to be integrated with various video and content platforms. But uh, from what I could gather from the website, I think it can be used in any other ecosystems as well, you know, where, where there is any sort of incentive uh, for loyalty that, that can be created in the ecosystem. So that's Props Project. And uh, the next one that we wanna quickly discuss is called Theta Token. and uh, the tagline for the project is actually next generation video delivery powered by you. So as their tagline suggests, uh, they aim to be a decentralized video delivery network. So this is pretty different from, you know, what, what the, the, the projects that we just discussed. This is actually dealing with actually the distribution of content itself, uh, making the streaming of it more efficient and at the same time, probably making it cheaper for various content platforms such as YouTube, you know, to, to actually distribute the content throughout the globe. So uh, Theta Token actually has a pretty impressive team. Uh, they are led by Mitch Liu and Joey Long, who were co-founders of Sliver TV, which is uh, an online streaming platform. And Sliver is also uh, one of their current first partners as of today, uh, apart from Sam Samsung VR, Pandora TV, and some others. So the aim here is to provide high quality video streaming in a decentralized manner, you know, which can reduce the buffering and lag and at the same time to provide it cheaper than what centralized CDN services are providing today. So just to explain, uh, CDN actually stands for Content Delivery Network. Uh, Nikhil, do you want to quickly touch upon, you know, what a CDN is and, you know, what it does? Sure. So uh, CDNs are uh, uh, an old uh, idea, actually. So the idea over there essentially is that you have, uh, when you have lots of large files, so videos are essentially a large file, right? Video, audio they tend to be very heavy, very large files. 
when you look at how the internet is created, it's essentially like uh, somebody pointed out a series of tubes. <laughs> but uh, essentially, what what it what it means is essentially that uh, the larger the file, the more and the further away the file is from your machine. So if you're on a laptop in um, the UK, say, and your file is located in a uh, server somewhere in Hong Kong, uh, the uh, the time taken to and the bandwidth consumed by streaming that particular file down is a main challenge in terms of uh, content delivery right so from a content uh, from the content platforms perspective it makes much more sense to have videos that are popular in the uk be placed somewhere in the uk close by you know on a server in the uk so that when when the people who want that particular piece of video uh, search for it or try to start to stream it, it is immediately available, available much quicker and most importantly saves them a lot of money in terms of bandwidth, right? So a CDN essentially is a fancy name for doing that, right? So it is essentially a set of servers that are distributed across the globe and uh, they're provided uh, used typically by companies like Akamai and uh, Fastly or even nowadays it's called Netlify uh, where they're provided as a service and uh, where you can place your heavy content. So images, uh, videos, uh, whatever you want to make available very, very quickly very uh, and fr from a local location, you put it on the local CDN and uh, whenever the uh, the consumer basically hits that particular url or load tries to load that particular page or particular video it would be redirected to this local location and pulled down from there great so with the theta network the company is actually looking to make a decentralized cdn you know which is intended to be both faster uh, than the centralized cdns as you just explained uh, as well as cheaper than them and uh, how they're looking to achieve this is by utilizing both uh, bandwidth as well as storage from the participants of the Theta network in a decentralized manner. To explain how the Theta network actually works, let's just quickly define what some of the most important aspects are. So, Theta token project consists of two main parts. First is the Theta video delivery network and second is the Theta blockchain itself. The video delivery network actually works as a P2P mesh network where the users basically share their bandwidth with other users around them. So if you are trying to watch a video, instead of fetching that data from your nearest CDN server, which might be a few hundred or a thousand miles away, you might be able to fetch it from someone within the P2P mesh network who is physically much nearer to you. So in this manner, you can basically cut down the distance that data has to travel compared to a centralized CDN network. And uh, they currently use a client server software that allows you to pick up the nearest node uh, to you when looking to fetch data for video streaming. Coming to the Theta blockchain, it actually works on a POS system, proof of stake system, uh, which is basically the consensus layer, you know, where the economics of the network is handled. The Theta blockchain is primarily used to handle payments and rewards within the network to participants for providing their bandwidth and storage. So to look at the consensus mechanism, the network follows a mechanism very similar to the delegated proof of stake system. Uh, so here you have uh, two levels of nodes. Uh, the top level consists of 20 validator nodes, uh, who are responsible for finally validating and adding the blocks. And then you have a second layer of nodes, which are collectively called the pool of guardians, 
and uh, these nodes are responsible for validating the blocks at various set points you know within the network uh, and uh, to look into the economics of how the network network works so they have two cryptocurrencies one is the theta token uh, the theta token is used for staking purposes by the nodes in the network and then you have something called theta fuel the theta fuel is actually used as a utility token to pay for bandwidth and storage so to look into you know where the company actually currently stands and how the network is growing you know just just to look into the history of it a little bit uh, in their starting days the company had raised about 20 million dollars in private sale then this was back in 2017 if uh, if i'm not mistaken and then earlier this year in march 2019 they launched their mainnet and then soon after that they announced their funding by samsung next and uh, a company called blockchain which is a wallet provider and you know through this funding the company claims to be funded well till the end of 2021 and actually even beyond that so the funding with samsung and some others in the industry points to the fact that theta will be incorporated into various set top boxes and smart tvs very soon so platforms like samsung vr pandora tv uh, cj hello and uh, some others have already begun integrating theta for their video delivery network and uh, theta is also actually funded by sony innovation fund so they recently partnered with a platform called little star to deliver content on 100 million plus sony playstation consoles worldwide uh, little star is actually an existing media platform that plays standard and vr content from disney sony fox nbc universal uh, and some of the other major broadcasters on various platforms through uh, ios and android devices this past october they also actually demoed the integration of theta into samsung smart tvs at the samsung developer conference so since smart tvs today are becoming more and more powerful from a computing standpoint they are effectively small computers right and you know that can be used within the theta mesh network as nodes for serving content so say if you had a samsung smart tv on the theta network you can earn theta tokens for providing bandwidth and storage for serving the content on this network and which might actually turn out to be faster for apps to access through this network versus your smart tv actually fetching that data through a centralized cdn server so that's where you know the company is sort of uh, currently progressing so the next thing that we want to talk about is uh, a completely different use case which is actually the management of uh, ownership rights in the digital media ecosystem especially uh, having to do with the distribution of uh, royalties the first project that we're going to talk about is uh, what is known as open music initiative uh, open music initiative was started at the berkeley college of music to change the way music licensing information is currently handled uh, and also the way royalties are currently being distributed and how uh, the various entities in the music industry work with each other you know to exchange uh, information about handling of royalties so uh, the music e- ecosystem actually has many problems mm, if you look at the industry from the top view there are many different players in the value chain uh, this includes artists composers the publisher record companies distributors and uh, various licensing bodies so one of the main problems currently has to do with the way metadata associated with various music files is generated and is handled in the industry there currently does not really exist a definitive standard for music metadata that is followed by all the various players in the music ecosystem and so as music actually moves down the value chain from entity to entity various kinds of metadata gets stripped away from you know moving from database to database so for example the metadata that's captured in uh the record labels database may be different from the metadata that's actually captured on a uh, digital streaming platform such as spotify or pandora 
And since the metadata directly uh, associates with who has worked on that piece of music and who should receive the royalties every time this music is bought or licensed somewhere, uh, when you lose that relevant metadata, with that you also lose some of the data about who needs to get paid for that music. So Open Music Initiative basically is a membership-based non-profit organization that uh, consists of over 200 companies in the music space. Uh, this includes Sony, Universal, Warner, uh, Pandora, Netflix, uh, SiriusXM, and many more prominent ones. So with this initiative, they're looking to work together and derive at a common standard or a working protocol for the music industry such that royalties can be distributed more fairly to the rightful owners of that music. One other project that's worth mentioning and which is actually also a member of the Open Music Initiative is the DOT Blockchain Music Project. Uh, so the DOT Blockchain Music uh, is a project that looking to come up with what they call Minimum Viable Data or MVD, which is nothing but the basic minimum necessary metadata required to identify uh, the current and original owners of a media. And uh, the idea of the DOT Blockchain Music Project is not to replace the existing metadata standards in the industry, but to actually leverage them and create a minimum viable data that can be put onto a blockchain in an irrefutable tamper-proof manner. And then you also have some artists, you know, who have gone ahead and taken charge of leading the revolution in the music industry with blockchain. So one such example is that of an artist named Imogen Heap, uh, who is developing a solution called the Creative Passport, which is a digital identity service for music creators, you know, that can be uh, used to solve some of the royalty distribution problems. So that's a great uh, uh, overview. In fact, it's a great deep dive, Krishna. So we looked at several projects in the video streaming space and specifically also explored a couple of projects in the music space as well. And uh, these are all great initiatives and uh, uh, should be moving forward. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of prescient that uh, this particular episode is being uh, recorded uh, around the time when uh, YouTube has gone ahead and uh, removed a lot of the crypto content that they have uh, and the crypto channels and the crypto proponents uh, from their uh, platform. In fact, they went ahead and did it uh, a couple of weeks back over Christmas and then, you know, they brought it back and claimed it was a air quotes mistake. Right. And uh, so uh, even though even if it was a genuine mistake, it kind of highlights, uh, you know, the amount of power that YouTube has a platform and, you know, the amount of concern that having, uh, you know, being tied to the YouTube platform for your livelihood can bring. So definitely, I think I, I kind of see that, you know, there's going to be a lot of at least cautious looking around the coming year uh, from the media industry, especially in terms of video content uh, creators to other platforms like Library and DTube and uh, others as, as kind of a backup mechanism or a alternative stream of revenue uh, just so that, you know, they can hedge their risks vis-a-vis -vis YouTube. Now, having said all that, one must not lose sight of the fact that uh, a lot of these companies are still very early in the space. Uh, if you look at library, uh, it's a very uh, impressive project, but uh, there is a uh, lack of clarity or lack of uh, performance when you look at these these uh, 
systems with, with respect to platforms like YouTube. One of the advantages of a centralized platform like YouTube is that they can actually invest in and build scale and performance into their platforms very easily. Whereas if you have a decentralized network, it is a much slower process by necessity, right? And uh, each one of these platforms basically are looking at different ways of hedging that by, you know, most, the, the common way seems to be that, you know, they put the metadata on the blockchain itself and they actually host the files in some other form. So in, in the case of library, you can host it on IPFS or you can host it on uh, your own server or you can host it on uh, their own infrastructure. Uh, and and basically they they create a URL that points to the data. In the case of DTube, they're, they're basically taking the metadata from all of these places and showing it uh, on their app while the video continues to live in YouTube or in uh, whatever other platform, Twitch, et cetera, et cetera, right? And in the case of Theta Token, they've got the peer-to-peer uh, streaming solution. So various levels of complexity and uh, technical uh, completeness, but uh, th there is a common theme in that, in that they've kept the video separate, the streaming of the video as a separate problem uh, independent of the actual discovery of and the metadata I and mean, the social aspect of the video platform, right? So one challenge obviously is that, you know, with tokens-based economies, the, the canonical one is essentially, okay, who actually invests in this? How does the token basically gain in value? What about speculation? Uh, and uh, how, how do you actually convert that token to fiat? Now, a couple of years back, or even a year back, those would be very strong questions in terms of conversion into fiat and things like that. Uh, but now, slowly, I think, uh, at least with, with respect to the larger coins, crypto coins like Bitcoin and Ethereum, there seems to be a lot of more acceptance in the mainstream. And slowly, bridges are being built, rails are being built to bring about convertibility between at least the major cryptocurrencies versus fiat and the good good news over there essentially is that okay if those kind of bridges and rails are built then all the other altcoins can be converted directly into bitcoin or ethereum without much problems since all of them are digital and then basically the fiat currency conversion step becomes a uh, the only step that you have to worry about now uh, another problem in terms of this essentially is that okay when you're talking about copyrighted content right so we talked about the case with with library the protocol basically has the data to be uploaded forever and they they don't have any control over it quote unquote the challenge essentially is that it's it's pretty much a similar challenge with everybody is that okay who actually owns that risk because that is absolutely a risk right so if you take the theta token example if you are giving up or if you are providing some part of your bandwidth and your file storage in your computer right what guarantee do you have that you are not holding on to objectionable content right and it might even turn into you know like what happened with napster back in the day where you know innocent the, the end consumer essentially becomes the smallest low-hanging fruit to go after in terms of a legal case right so that that might that's another risk so you might have a case where, you know, you might be 
holding a fragment of an objectionable file and then have to pay a fine or or even you know go to court based basically based, based on that admittedly far-fetched idea but not impossible right so it's, it's definitely a risk now another one that is uh, kind of a short-term risk essentially is the whole user experience of this right so one thing that uh, i think youtube does really well and partly because it youtube happens to have the resources of google behind it is that they are very good at searching through and uh, surfacing the, the, the search engine is very good right so you can search for content and you will get results very quickly and very fast and uh, again that's a challenge with a decentralized network uh, because definitely you don't have as much control of or as much knowledge of all the video files or music files that are there all the content that is there and you've not got a decentralized index now again those are questions that can be handled in fact if you look at it one of the big advantages at least i see in terms of this entire supply chain if you want to look at it that way the music supply chain or the media supply chain is that just like the financial supply chain the media supply chain is at this point in time digital from end to end right so you have your content being created digitally and it being consumed digitally so that makes it uniquely suitable for the types of decentralized systems you know that 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 are like blockchain so essentially it uh, since you are dealing with bits end to end you don't have to worry about to you don't have to worry as much about the first mile problem or the idea the need for oracles that will tell you okay whether the real world is matching you know the the snapshot that is there inside the blockchain system since all of it is digital from end to end you, you could uh, conceive of a particular system that basically just like the open music initiative at the point of creation uh, identify and uh, stamp the digital content in such a way to uniquely identify it and and then use that particular piece of identification to track the provenance of it who is owning it who needs to be paid etc etc so that's basically how i see this uh, i think this is a promising area at least for blockchains and uh, i i look forward to seeing a lot of innovation happening here all right folks that concludes our podcast we hope that you found this episode on blockchain and media useful you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes google play spotify also you can learn more about us on bcdialogues.com thanks again for joining see you next time